welcome to Standing in the Gap. I'm your host preacher, Brandon Harrell. Standing in the Gap is a weekly audio Bible study dedicated to the verse-by-verse exposition of the KJV Scriptures. It is my prayer that through these studies, the lost will be saved, the believer edified, and most of all, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified and honored through the proclamation of His Word. For correspondence information, please stay tuned until the end of the broadcast. May the Lord bless you as you listen to this week's Standing in the Gap. Abel, would you stand with me tonight and we'll reverence the reading of God's Word together. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, and I'm going to read actually three verses because I don't like to break in the middle of a sentence, but in verse number 14... He says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. You can be seated tonight. Thank you for standing. Paul in this epistle is instructing Timothy in regards to what would be his role at the church of Ephesus. He was left there to help establish the church and uh, ordain elders in that church. And in the passage before us, Paul is emphasizing what the church is and what the church is to do. He said it is the house of God. In this, it is the dwelling place of God. Each member is his temple and a part of his house or family. It is the church. In that, it is is the called out assembly of the saints. I believe that first and foremost in Scripture, the church is local and visible. Now, I don't deny that one day all of the saints of God are going to gather on the other shore and the general assembly of the firstborn will meet. But until then, the church is local and the church is visible. And I hear a lot of talk about it in other ways. I had an old man of God that I grew up under and got around quite a bit after I started pastoring. He used to say this. He'd say, I'll write an invisible check to your invisible church and we'll see if you can cash it. Amen. But the church is local and visible. And that was where Timothy was going. He was going to pastor a local visible assembly of the saints. And so he was instructing what that body was to be responsible for. Jesus said in John 5, 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. It is the church of God. God is the possessor, giver, and sustainer of all life, physical and spiritual, and that goes for the church. God is uh, the one that breathes life into his church. And it is his church, by the way. I know a lot of pastors who think it's their church, not your church. If you're the pastor, it's not your church. I know a lot of deacons who think it's their church. Got news for you, it's not your church. 
know a lot of church members and families in churches. They think that church belongs to them. Got bad news for you. It's not your church. The church belongs to God tonight. Amen. It's the Lord's church first and foremost. Christ is the head of the church. I'm grateful tonight for the church. Thank God for it. God saved me in a church. Called me to preach in a church. He's helped me time and time again in the church. And I'm glad for the church. In this scripture, the Bible tells us that the church, every really, it's, it's the church at Ephesus is included here, but I believe every New Testament church is said to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. What a great honor we have in that capacity. The pillar and the ground of the truth. Churches exist for the purpose of the preservation and the propagation of the truth that is found in the inspired scriptures. However, in the words of Pilate, what is truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the embodiment of all that is true. All that we believe, that faith once delivered unto the saints, rests upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the truth. So we are the pillar. We are to hold up and hold forth his name. We are to magnify him. Uh, and we do that through the propagation and preservation of the scriptures as his people. Now what is stated in verse 16 is somewhat of an encapsulation of the truth. It is the essence of what is believed by everyone who is truly born again. These things, it says, are held without controversy. He says it there in verse number 16, without controversy. The phrase translates a word which literally means to speak the same thing. In other words, if an individual or any religious entity or any assembled group who call themselves a church fail to adhere to the veracity of any aspect of the doctrine put forth in verse 16. They are not a Christian and they are not a church. Amen. You say that's kind of harsh. Well, I'm just as harsh as the Lord is. And that's what the Lord says about it. There's no controversy here. Amen. None whatsoever. We're told here of a mystery. The term is used in contradistinction to a concept that existed in many Greek religions. There were secrets or mysteries that were only related to those who were, in their view, being initiated. And that is the meaning behind this word. And in a New Testament Christian sense, this mystery is a sacred secret that is revealed to those who are initiated by God to understand them and to know them. A good explanation of this is found in Mark 4. After relating the parable of the sower publicly, Jesus asked about its meaning by, was asked about its meaning by his disciples. And in verse 10 and following, he said this. He said, And when he was alone, they that were about him with, 12, with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. 
And so the Lord was speaking in parables so that his disciples would hear and others would not hear. Of course, this is prior to Calvary. There was a purpose in their blindness. There was a purpose in their inability to understand. He was going to the cross. He would be crucified. Nothing could thwart that plan of God. And so he said, there are those who understand and there are those who do not. But it's given unto you, he said, to know the mystery. He then explained the parable to them. Thus, the mysteries of scriptures are not puzzles to be solved, nor are they riddles to be meditated upon and intellectually resolved within ourselves. That's not what a scriptural mystery is. They are truths that have been previously hidden to the natural man, but are revealed to the saints of God by the Spirit of God. He lays this out for us in 1 Corinthians, Paul does in chapter 2. And he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual He says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." These mysteries cannot be uh, found out and solved and, and come uh, to a knowledge of through our intellectual ability, through the reading of many books. But it is God, and we talked about it the other night, that illumination. He has to turn the light on. Our minds were blinded. The God of this world had hidden the gospel from us. But he illuminated. He made us able to see and gave us insight into his mysteries. And here in our text tonight, we find the mystery of godliness. It's said to be a great mystery. little word great there, it's the same, it's, it's from a Greek word, and it's funny that the, the same Greek word is where we get our word mega. Back when I was a kid, we had a buffet there in town, and they had what they called a mega bar. Man, I like that mega bar. It had everything on it. Sometimes I might want pizza. Other times I might want a chicken nugget. They even had egg rolls on that thing. Didn't matter what you wanted, you could find. It was huge, man. That thing was so long. I felt like I got my exercise just walking to get all the food I was going to eat. By the time I got done, I needed the exercise I got. But it was huge, man. It was big. And that's what he's saying about this mystery. He's saying this is a big mystery. This is a great mystery. This is a mystery. It didn't take you a while to walk around. Amen. And that's how the mysteries of God are, aren't they? It's amazing how many things that we learn as we go and try to develop and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. That it seems like the more we discover about them, the bigger they get. And sometimes I'll come to a doctrine in the Word of God and I'll try to get my hands on it and get my mind around it and I feel like I'm trying to give old Mount Everest a big old bear hug because I can't get my hands around it. Brother, God's bigger than we are. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We'll never get God put in our little boxes that we want to put God in. And brother, here's a mystery, a great mystery that that he's wanting us to know about. He said it is the mystery of godliness. Mystery of godliness. It comes from a root that I won't try to pronounce. 
But this particular Greek root is defined by vine as that piety which characterized by a Godward attitude does that which is well-pleasing to him. It is a compound word, and the two words that make it up, one means well, and one means worship. Thus, the believer is made to understand that in order to worship God well, he must know the facts of what is stated in verse 16. And they all revolve around who? The person of Jesus Christ. So here's the bottom line about this mystery tonight. If you will worship God well, you'll have to do it with an understanding of just who Jesus is. And this verse tells us a whole lot about exactly who the Lord Jesus is. You can't worship God apart from Christ. I love what Jesus said about eternal life in John 17 when he defined it for us. He said, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. He said salvation boils down to this. It's knowing God and knowing Christ. And I say it's impossible tonight to know God apart from knowing Christ. And it's, a, it's impossible to know Christ apart from knowing God. And brother, if we'll worship Him, it'll come through knowing and discovering and loving the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great mystery that we have before us. And so He then... And begins to express who Jesus is and what he has done in six short statements. We'll examine them under five headings this evening. Maybe uh, we can couple a couple together and not keep you all night. But notice with me, first of all, the manifestation of Christ. Now, without controversy, every believer... Every true congregation that assembles together and says they're a church, they will have no problem with this fact. God was manifest in the flesh. Oh, thank God for that truth tonight. If you've got a problem with the fact that God was manifest in the flesh, I would suggest to you tonight, run to an altar, call on the Lord, and get born again by the Spirit of God because you are L-O-S-T lost. Amen. God was manifest in the flesh. Watch some things with me. First of all, as we think about this matter of the deity of Christ, this truth is essential in the Christian faith. No one is saved who does not believe in the deity of Christ. The word manifest here implies, first of all, pre-existence. He was manifest in the flesh. That means he was somewhere unseen and then he became visible to humanity. I want to remind you that Jesus didn't begin in the womb of Mary. He did not start in a little manger in Bethlehem. No, he's always been. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the same was in the beginning with God. Without him was not anything made that was made. Amen. Hey, he's always been. Jesus Pre-existence is implied in this verse. God was manifest in the flesh. Thayer defines the word used here this way. He says it means to make visible or known what has been hidden. Strong's defines it to render apparent. Christ was rendering God apparent unto humanity when he came on the scene in this earth. 
The Hebrew writer declared in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 of his epistle, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The Hebrew writer believed that God was manifest in the flesh. One little phrase I love there in Hebrews, and I love that whole little passage there of four verses. Those are jam-packed with goody. But that little phrase, the brightness of his glory. He says, he, who being the brightness of his glory. In this text, that word who being, that phrase who being, uh, the word is uh, on. It's a Greek word, on, O-N. It refers to the state of one's existence. But one particular lexicon points out that it does not, however, refer to the beginning of that existence. The reason that's important is because most of your cults will try to say that that word has something to do with becoming and that that implies that Jesus began. Well, that's not what the verse, that's not what the word says. It does not refer to a beginning, but he being. It tells us that he already was. That's what it's really getting at. He already was the brightness of his glory. But we couldn't see him because he was up yonder and we were down here. But then he came down here and made himself known. And we can see then visibly the brightness of the glory of God. And then look at that little word brightness. Uh, it means outraying. It refers to light issuing from a luminous body. This, I think, gets us near the primary meaning of the word. Just as the sun's rays are still of the same nature as the sun, so Christ is of the same nature as the Father. However, were we to have as direct contact with the sun, as we, uh, with the S-U-N, as we do with the rays of the sun, we would burn up instantly. If the rays of the sun hit you and you had that contact with the actual sun, that'd be the end of you. And so it is with Christ. We can have direct contact with Christ that we could not have with God. If God in all of his glory had stepped into this planet in the same way that he did when he was manifest in the flesh, she would have exploded. Amen. That's, that's our God. He's a consuming fire, isn't he? But the brightness of his glory... Christ allows us to see and enjoy the Father without being destroyed in the same way that the rays of the sun allow us to enjoy the sun without being burned up. Wow. The brightness of his glory. There is, however, another meaning to this word. It carries the idea of shining forth. It means radiance. It has to do with effulgence. One definition is that it is a flashing forth of light. This draws our attention to the spectacle of Christ's splendor. Can you see him? There in the little manger in Bethlehem, the splendor of God upon him, 
And those wise men traveling afar coming to see that little babe in the manger. There was the glory of God laid upon his mother's bosom. You see him there in the temple at 12. Already far more knowledgeable about the law of God than anyone he was talking to. And in that you see just a little splendor and a little glimpse of the glory of God within him. There he is at 30 uh, some years old coming down to the Jordan. And there's John. He's baptizing. When John's baptizing in the river, he's turned a few Pharisees and scribes away. And he's been baptizing others saying, come on in, confess your sin. But then all of a sudden he looks up and there stands Jesus Christ. Christ and he said be it far from me he said look I should be baptized of you and the Lord said no let it be now we got to fulfill all righteousness and John the Baptist recognized the glory of God in Christ and it got even better he put him under the water and the spirit came down we'll talk about that in a few minutes and the next day when he came walking down John said behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world I think about the widow of Nain there she was with her son she'd already been to the graveyard with her husband and now she's taking her son and the Lord Jesus walked up and touched the fire and her son got up from the dead a little glory being shown forth of who the Lord Jesus was He's the brightness of the glory of God. Over and over you see glimpses of his splendor and his glory. That's the son of God. That's the one we worship. That's God manifest in the flesh. The brightness of his glory. The word glory comes from the word docs. It's very common in scripture. means a smorgasbord of things. There's a whole lot of definitions. You just have to look at your context to find out what it means in that particular passage. And here its meaning is always, uh, here it denotes the collective attributes of God. His essence, the sum of all that God is, is his glory. Therefore, Jesus is one who flashes forth the person of God in all of his glory. There are many times in his earthly ministry where we see it. The deity of Jesus is the testimony of his entire earthly life. You remember the words of Philip in John 14. He saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. He's talking to him about leaving. He's saying, I'm heading out of here. I'm going to prepare a place. And they're getting sadder and sadder. And Philip said, I don't know what to make about all of that. He said, but if you just, just look up there for a minute and part the heavens and just let us look in there for a second and just see the Father. He said, then we'd be satisfied. That fixes. The Lord said, you're missing it, son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All that God is can be seen in Christ. John 17, 6, Jesus praying, he said, I have manifested thy name. Under the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Name in scripture is just another word for the essence. The person himself. He said I've made you known to mankind. That's what Jesus came to do. 
We quoted already a little bit of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, but down in verse 14 it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on and says, And of His fullness have all we received in grace for grace. He says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. I love that little word declared in John chapter 1. It really literally means to expound, to exposit, to explain. If you want to know what God is like, just figure out what Jesus is like. He's, he's God. Amen. They're one in essence, one in being. Hallelujah. Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. So we see the manifestation of Christ. Notice secondly with me the justification of Christ. The Bible says here in our verse, God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Justified in the Spirit. Now when you read that with your own justification in mind, it'll get you all messed up as to what it really means. To be justified in the sense that we are is to be declared righteous. God has declared us righteous in Christ. His righteousness by faith has been imputed unto us. But the Lord needed no justification. He was justified in himself. He was right already. He was holy and undefiled and separate from sinners. And so what does the word mean here when it says that he was justified? This word literally means to show, to exhibit, or to evince one to be righteous such as he is and wishes himself to be considered. So in other words, all this means is that the Spirit vindicated and, and, and made known that Jesus was who he said that he was. The Spirit of God ministering and working in the life of Christ let this world know and through the Scriptures lets you and I know that he is in fact the Son of God, the sinless Lamb without spot and without blemish. Think about some instances of this in the Scriptures. In Luke chapter number 1, beginning in verse 30, we read, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Mary had a problem. She just got told she was going to conceive and have a child, but she'd never been with a man. And so she's got a natural question, an honest question. She said, How then shall this be? And the angel answered and said unto her in verse 35, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the high shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Brother, that's justification in the spirit. That was the spirit of God moving in such a way as to vindicate that that child in Mary's womb was in fact the Messiah, the one sent from God, holy and God himself, justified in the spirit. I think about poor old Joseph after that. She'd been gone three months and left to go see Elizabeth, her cousin, who was also pregnant in a miraculous manner. 
And uh, his, uh, his fiance had just disappeared for three months. Well, she shows back up and she's showing. And I'd be like he was. He probably had some issues with that. And he began to question her and she told him the whole story. She told him the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But man, that was just more than he could imagine, more than he could swallow. And so the Bible said because he was a just man, he was going to put her away. He went to bed that night. He'd already made up his mind. That's all he could do. He wasn't going to make a show of it. He wasn't going to embarrass her. Wasn't going to make a big scene. But he went to bed that night and he got a visitor. And the angel Lord came and he said, everything she told you is right. And so then there he was going to be the, 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 the adoptive dad, if you will, of the Lord Jesus, the son of God. Oh, what a blessing. Vindicated, justified in the spirit at his birth. Luke chapter 2, it happened again on the eighth day. I took him in there to get him circumcised, as was the way of all the little Jewish boys. They walk into the temple, and there was a fellow in there by the name of Simeon. By this time, no doubt feeble, and all of his hair either white or missing. Probably if I get that old, I won't have any left. But he was old and feeble and no doubt a little bit shaky. And the old man had been coming to the temple every day. And God revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. Amen. And the Bible tells us he was full of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost got to him in the middle of the day and said, you need to get down to the temple. It's time. And he walked in and there was Mary and she had that baby in her arms and he threw up his hands and he said, God, I can die now. I've seen what you said I'd see. And the Spirit of God filling him and driving him to the temple justified in the spirit that that was the Christ. Think about Mary. Oh, she was willing to hand her baby over to that feeble man. And you imagine, no doubt, a lot of mothers, a man that of uh, that age and maybe quivering a little bit. Man, she didn't have any reservations. She handed that baby over and he began to talk about what great child this would be. Vindicated, justified in the spirit. And then again, at his baptism, we mentioned it already. John Bear records saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. John said, I didn't really know what I was looking for, but when he came up out of that water and the Spirit of God lighted on him, I knew then that's who God said it would be, justified in the Spirit. The miracles of Christ justified him in the spirit. It was in the power of the Holy Ghost that he performed those miracles and that attested to his claims about himself. Matthew 12, and Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? He said, and I, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. And brother, that's how he did it. And he's saying to them, because of these miracles and the power of the Holy Ghost performing them through me, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that the kingdom of God is come unto you. Justified. In the spirit, in his resurrection, in his resurrection, he was justified 
In the spirit, First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The Spirit of God entered into that too. And I realize God the Father raised him, and Christ took up his own life again. But thank God the Trinity was involved in that. And the Spirit of God quickened that body, and he came out of that tomb, justified in the Spirit. It happened again at Pentecost. See, the Lord had made a promise to his disciples. He said in John chapter number 16, But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me. None of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Amen. Think about the, 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 I guess, the veracity of such a statement, the weight of such a statement. The Lord is saying, I am making a promise to you that when I go away, I will send the Comforter. And of course, that did take place. Acts chapter number 2, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. He came as a direct result of the promise of Christ to his disciples. And when Jesus made that claim, had he left this earth on a cloud or not on a cloud, and the Spirit of God had not descended, he would have been able to, somebody would have been able to look at him and say, you're a fraud and a liar. But thank God on the day of Pentecost, that promise came to pass, and the Holy Ghost fell on the church Amen. and empowered them to fulfill the great commission that he had left them we had justified in the spirit. God was manifest in the flesh. Notice thirdly the observation of Christ. The Bible says he was seen of angels. Seen of angels. All about the ministry of the angels. They, first of all their magnification of him. The word here denotes inspection. It carries the idea of gazing at something that is considered remarkable. Is not this what's occurring in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6? When the seraphim swarm the throne and cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I have no problem believing that Christ was sitting on that throne even in Isaiah's day. We know he existed. He had to be somewhere. I believe it was there. And they saw him. They magnified him. They honored him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Then we see the angels seeing him and their ministry to him. The word here is found again in Matthew 27 two times. It's found in verse 4. It's translated there, see thou to that. And then in verse 24, it's translated, see ye to it. In that context, Pilate is telling the Jews to handle their own business. He's saying, you see to that. You see to the crucifixion. You see to that uh, that you want done unto this man. So in other words, he's telling them uh, to take care of it. To handle it. Now we use it in that way in the mountains. Someone's sick and we say, who's seeing to them? 
Right? You ever heard anybody say that? Some of you, if you traveled up there, you might have. You ever gone to the doctor and been seen? Right? The doctor don't just stand there and look at you, does he? He'll hit your knee with a hammer or give you a pill or do something. He don't just stand there and look at you. You're being seen by the doctor. That means he's doing something. He's ministering to you in some way. Well, that's what the angels did to Christ. The Bible tells us that it happened on more than one occasion. They saw to him on several occasions, one time in the wilderness, after his temptation. And there he was. He'd been 40 days fasting in the desert. And at his weakest moment, the devil had come and began to throw the kitchen sink at him as far as temptation was concerned. And after the devil departed, there he was in his weakness and his frailty. And the angels came and ministered unto him. We find it again in Gethsemane. He'd prayed. Hebrew writer talks about that instance in regards, kind of applying it to us. And he says that he resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What was it that made him bleed through his sweat glands in that garden? He was looking into that cup. He saw what he'd have to become in order to save you and I. His disdain and grief over sin caused such stress and anguish of soul that he began to bleed uh, through his sweat glands. There he was in weakness once again, uh, pretty soon to be arrested and carried off to a kangaroo court. And the angels came and they saw to him. They ministered to him there in Gethsemane. But then we see their meditation upon him. The word has the idea of beholding and considering. I thought about this. Peter's talking about our salvation in 1 Peter 1. Beginning in verse 10, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify then uh, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And then he says this, which things the angels desire to look into. It's an incredible thing. All that time that they're, manif- that they're magnifying him in glory. And then all of a sudden, he's not on the throne, but rather he's in the womb of a virgin, born and laid in a manger. And the angels are watching this. And all the while they're scratching their heads, what's he doing? Why did he leave heaven? And then all of a sudden they began to see him scourged and mocked and scorned and hated by this world. And they knew the treatment he was getting in glory. And they see that compared to what he's getting down here. No doubt that was baffling to those angels. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. All they know is the one that had sat on the throne and received their worship gladly had now left heaven, condescended unto men, and was walking on the earth in a sin-cursed world, surrounded by that that he hated, surrounded by filth and degradation, being mocked and scourged, uh, scorned and, and hated by men. And it did not make sense to them, no doubt. They desired to look into it. Can you imagine their dismay? Can you imagine the dismay of those that we already mentioned that had to come minister to him in the wilderness, seeing him go toe-to-toe with the devil in temptation? 
And seeing him uh, in that garden there as he prayed and his sweat became great drops of blood. And there the angels were beholding this. What is he doing? Why is he undergoing this? Why would he put himself through this? Then there they were as they led him up Calvary with the cross on his back. They were there when they drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. The angels were looking on as they took that cross and stood it up and dropped it into that hole. And that great thud, no doubt, caused pain to the, to the whole of his body as he was racked there on the cross. And all the while they're sitting there waiting for a word, waiting for direction. They said, we can put a stop to this. You remember what the Lord Jesus said? He said, could I not now even call 12 legions of angels to come to my rescue? But he did not do so. When Peter tried to stop it, he stopped him. He said, put your sword back up, Peter. I've got to go through with this. And all the while, the angels are looking on, ready to put a stop to what they're seeing. And Jesus did not call. The command did not come, and they could not move without a command from their master. And finally, they heard the words, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Christ's lifeless body hanged on the cross. A little while later, here come Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they pulled his body off of that cross, and they wrapped it in those linens and took it down to Joseph's tomb and placed it in there, and the stone was rolled in front. No doubt they were wondering, what on earth? What's going on? Three days and three nights pass. I find no indication that the angels understood what had happened. But then suddenly in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, the angel of the Lord received the command to go and roll back the stone. And this he did, and to his great satisfaction, that tomb was empty. Jesus was alive. Jesus was risen. They said, wow. He went through all of that, and now he's not even dead. But they still didn't know. Still didn't get it. But redemption had been accomplished. Christ saving sinners. And in John, uh, in his revelation in chapter 21 and verse 9, we find that the angels finally understood it. The Bible says that there came unto John one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of seven last plagues. And he talked with me saying, come hither. I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Oh, there they got to look on the redeemed ones. They saw then the purpose and the reason for which Christ had left heaven and come to this earth. Now it all made sense. Now the angels understood. He redeemed unworthy sinners. Not even their own were loved like this. Those fallen angels found no mercy. But humanity's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you with the words of John when he said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. When angels fell, he left them in that state. But when humanity fell, he sent his only begotten Son to die in our place and redeem us from the curse and make sons out of us. Amen. 
all this crowd that gets all excited at funerals when they hear false teaching like somehow granny's going to get her wings and be an angel. God deliver us from that kind of mess. Brother, one of these days when we all get to glory, the angels are going to have to step aside and fold their wings and listen as we sing a song that they never understood the words to. Hallelujah to the Lamb. I'm glad I'm redeemed tonight. I've got it better than an angel ever dreamed of having it. Amen. Saved. Oh, they've seen him. Not just those that magnified him, not just those that ministered to him, but those over whom he had the mastery. They saw him, didn't they? They recognized him. It's demonstrated in Mark 1. The synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, he cried out saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? They recognized his authority. They understood they were on a leash. They understood that he was in charge. In Mark 5, we mentioned it previously in the week, when he cast out that legion out of that demoniac at Gadarene. And brother, they went jumping off into the ocean. Christ dispatched them. Let me just say this, he's still dispatching them today. I was at a bread company working and there was a fellow next to me. He'd gone to see some horror movie that was out and he come in that morning. He was talking about that thing. He's all scared of ghosts and demons and whatnot. I said, that stuff don't scare me. He said, why not? And I read him that story of the gathering. I said, here's why. I said, I'm serving a Lord. I'm serving a Savior that's got dominion over that crowd. I said, they can't get near me. They can't touch me. They can't do nothing with me because I've got a Savior. Hallelujah. I'm not worried about the demons of this earth. Oh, thank God for that today. Our Lord was seen by those angels. He showed himself to them in power. It's further seen in the future. Jude verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Scene of angels. Scene of angels. Isn't that head angel of the fallen crowd? The devil himself. Jesus mastered him in the wilderness, didn't he? He thought surely he'd get him to give in and fall into that temptation and doom all of the world. Never happened. By the power of the Holy Ghost and with a good, uh, good dose of the Holy Scriptures, Satan had to leave him alone. And let me just say that. Tonight, you and I that are saved, we've got the same armament. We don't have to give in to the temptations of the devil. If you've got Christ living in you by his spirit and you've got a copy of the word of God, you've got everything you need. You are well equipped to overcome every temptation. There is always with a temptation a way of escape made for us. And one of these days, that angel too, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Oh, the observation of Christ. He was seen of angels. But then notice with me the proclamation of Christ. Preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Paul said in Romans 1, 16 and 17, some of my favorite scripture, I know it's all familiar to all of us. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Not just the Jews shall live by faith, but the just, Jew and Gentile. See, this was a stumbling block for the Jews. 
They were baffled that this salvation could encompass all nations. So it baffles us that are Gentiles that we're in on it now. It is this mystery that is in view in Romans 11 when he says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Take that, all millennials. Amen. It is written, There shall come out a sign the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes but it's touching the election they are beloved for the father's sake for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance for as ye in time past have not believed God yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy for God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Oh, preached unto the Gentiles. What a blessing that is. I think often about the condition of things in that uh, first century world. Rome dominated. Through that, they'd built interstate, I guess you could call it, road systems into all of the known world. There was one language on the face of the earth, Greek. And it was at that time, the fullness of the time was come. And God sent forth his son. And this world was ripe for the spread of the gospel. And it was even so that the Jews had suffered such persecution under that Roman Empire that they had been spread out. And so you'll watch it every time Paul entered into a city, he went two places. First, he went to the synagogue, and then he went to jail. He got a hold of them Jews, and then he got a hold of them Gentiles. Amen. And he preached unto them the gospel of Christ. Hallelujah. What a blessing. Preached unto the Gentiles. Writing to Timothy, he said in 1 Timothy 1.15, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Oh, what a blessing. It's worthy tonight of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're a sinner, you're qualified tonight to get saved. That's why he came. It's worthy to be received you and I are among those spoken of by the prophet Isaiah in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy. Verse 1, he said, Who hath believed our report? And unto whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I want to raise my hand tonight and say, I believe the report. I believe the report. I believe God was manifest in the flesh. I believe he was seen of angels. I believe he was justified in the spirit. I believe he was received up to glory. Hallelujah. He was preached unto me and I believed. Hallelujah for that. And then lastly tonight, notice the glorification of Christ. He was received up into glory. In Acts 1-9, we read the account of this occurring. It says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He was received up into glory. you imagine being there that day? Can you imagine just a cloud just falling out of the sky and standing by the Lord and he just stepped up on it and it took him to heaven? 
It ain't no wonder that they stood there for a little while and went like his. I mean, I imagine he got plumb out of sight and they're still just standing there drooling on their set. And you remember the, the visitor came by and said, why stand you here gazing? Get to work. There's work to do. Go tell everybody what you just saw. But, but, but. I heard an old preacher say one time, he said, in that same cloud that dropped him off, been sitting there idling ever since, and one of these days he's going to step on her again and come back. Hallelujah. He was received up into glory. That's a significant thing. It marked the acceptance of his work. The acceptance of his work. When he was received up into glory, that let us know that the God of heaven was satisfied with everything he had done while he was here. Brother, that's why when he got there, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having by himself purged our sins. He had a place by the Father. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 11 and 12, it says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. His work was accepted. It marked a reunion between him and his father. I thought about John 17. In his prayer there, he says, Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The hardest part of Jesus Leaving heaven was the fact that he would not have the same communion with his father that he had had. While he was here, he was short of that. He was missing that. He did that all for us. He, he lost that fellowship that he had in the glory of God to come down here and get fellowship with you and with me. I see that pictured pretty good in Adam. The Bible tells us Eve was deceived, but Adam never was. He went into that willingly and with open eyes. Here was the cost he had in mind. Here was the estimation he made. He said, if I don't partake of that fruit, she's gone forever and I'll never have fellowship with her. And if I'm going to have fellowship with her, then I've got to sacrifice fellowship with the Father. Brother, that's what Christ did for us. He laid aside fellowship with the Father in order to have fellowship with us. But that day when he got on that cloud... He got back into that fellowship with his father that he'd been so longing for. If you keep reading John 17, you're going to find out one of these days you and I are going to get in on that same glory and that same fellowship in a way that we've never had even a taste of here. The acceptance of his work, the reunion with his father, and in that ascension, in that receiving up to glory, his intercessory work began. Huh. He tells us in Hebrews 7, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Oh, I'm glad I've got a high priest tonight. He's not going to die and he's not going to get old and he's not going to have to be replaced. And I'm not going to be like those Israelites were, wondering who's coming next. No, no, he's going to be there forever doing the same work. Accepted of the Father. Then, of course, the Comforter was sent. I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And so it was. All the mystery of godliness. 
true worship of God revolves around an understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. That's the message. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for listening to Standing in the Gap. It is my desire that today's episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to contact me, my email is bcharrell83 at protonmail.com. That's B-C-H-A-R-R-E-L-L 83 at protonmail.com. You can also reach me by phone at 828-777-4923. Tune in next time for Standing in the Gap.